So we are in Acts, and we sort of finished up chapter 3 last time, but I want to back up to verse 17, because we got all talking on prayer and so forth, and there were a couple other things in uh, that last paragraph that I wanted to mention before we go into 4. So I'm in Acts 3.17. This, by the way, is Peter speaking. And I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. So first thing is, he is saying that all concerned with the crucifixion were acting in ignorance. Verse 18. Well, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, did I mention last time that this is a variation from the Masoretic text? I did a riff a couple times ago that there are quotations in the New Testament that do not match what you have in your Torah. There's two reasons for that that I know of. Reason number one is, of course, that a lot of these guys are quoting Scripture on the fly from memory, and they are not, in fact, scholars. So it's sort of like somebody who grew up in Sunday school and somebody asked him to quote scripture and he just sort of quotes it from memory, getting the essence pretty much right, but not necessarily getting the words right. That's possibility number one. And then possibility number two is they are quoting from a different version of the scripture, which is the Septuagint. In this case, that is what's going on. So if you read the Septuagint, that passage of scripture reads as Peter quotes it. If, however, you go back to Deuteronomy, which is where he's quoting from, and I'll pick it up in Deuteronomy 18.18, I will rise up for them a prophet like you, you being Moses, from among your brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the passage reads, I will require it of him, whereas in the New Testament, it says he will be destroyed from the people. Very different connotations, if you will. And the difference is in this version of Scripture from which he's quoting the Septuagint. So let me back up to 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said... Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. You all have been through this a number of times. As they're standing at the bottom of Sinai, and the fire's coming down on the mountain and all that kind of stuff, the Hebrew grammar is such that it appears that the voice changes between the second and the third commandment. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, as it's written in Scripture, the people say, uh, Moses... We don't want to hear the voice of God anymore or we'll die. You go up and talk to him and tell us what he's got to say, and you come back down because we'll listen to you, but we can't hear God anymore or we won't survive. According to the Hebrew grammar, that conversation actually happens between the second and the third commandment. So 
the idea there is hearing the voice of God directly is something that very few people can endure. And of course, one of the signature events when someone meets the angel of the Lord or an angelic being or anything like that is he goes down like a sack of rocks. He generally has to go change his underwear. It's a very traumatic event. In fact, when the angels came to the shepherds in the field to announce the birth of Yeshua, what's the first thing they say? Fear not. They don't need to say that unless the natural reaction is to be terrified. So the fact that Israel was terrified when God spoke directly to them on the mountain is consistent through Scripture. So what they do is they send a man, Moses, and that man gets the word of God and brings it down to him. And what Moses is saying here, or God is saying through Moses here, is in the future there will be another man. And that man will speak my word to them just as you have spoken my word to them. And then depending on which version of the Bible you're looking at, the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, either if you don't listen to him, I will require it of you, or if you don't listen to him, you'll be destroyed from your people. And I'm not qualified to referee between those two texts. But the idea that is important is people have always required a human mediator between God and themselves. First it was Moses, and then, of course, it's Yeshua. And you all remember in the Gospels when the temple authorities send out to the Jordan River where John is baptizing, and they're saying, who are you and what's your authority and why are you doing this, right? And one of the questions they ask him is, are you the prophet? And John says, no, I'm not. So the idea of the prophet is something that goes throughout all of Israel's history, and as far as I know, they're probably still waiting for him. But the idea of having a man as an intermediary between God and the people goes all the way back to Sinai. And the reason I'm saying this is you'll find a lot of people, to include some messianics, who will say, we don't see any place for this Jesus guy. You just need to go back and do the Torah. You need to do Moses and the Torah, and it's really all you need. In this particular context, what I'm saying is the idea of a man being the intermediary goes clear back to Sinai. So the idea that God had sent a man again, his son, to be an intermediary, and it's completely consistent with Scripture. The other thing that Peter is doing, at least it appears that he's doing it, is he is absolving Israel from guilt in the crucifixion. Because he says, you guys did it in ignorance, and your leaders did it in ignorance. And what was the last thing that Yeshua said before he died? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So in today's jurisprudence, what that does is it makes it manslaughter instead of murder. In other words, there was no murderous intention here. They simply misunderstood the situation, misapplied capital law, and executed this guy when they shouldn't have. It was a miscarriage of justice, and it wasn't malicious. At least that's God's opinion and Peter's opinion. 
both of whom are more authoritative than I am. I'm back in Acts chapter 3, I'm all the way down to verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And again, I've said this lots and lots of times in various contexts. In his first incarnation, the first time he comes, Yeshua is acting in the role of an Old Testament prophet. As I've said, having an Old Testament prophet come through your town is not a good deal because God doesn't send prophets except to straighten people out. So if you get to the point where God feels like he needs to send you a prophet, it's not to pat you on the back and tell you how well you're doing. It's to tell you to repent, get your act together, or you're going into exile. And of course, that's what happens with Yeshua. So what Peter is saying here is God sent you a prophet with the idea that you would repent and return to him and that exile would not be necessary. And of course, we know that that didn't work and exile does become necessary. So now, on to chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested him and put him in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So in the politics of Israel at that time, what I would say is the Pharisees would have been the fundamentalists, the hard-shell Baptists and so forth. Sadducees would have been the Episcopalians. Upper class, aristocratic, they were the ones that were in charge of the temple. In addition to the priests, you know, the priests were the ones that did the ceremonies, but the Sadducees were pretty much the guys that ran the temple service. So they were sort of upper class. And it was their belief that there was no resurrection. So when Peter is speaking of the resurrection of Yeshua and proclaiming resurrection from the dead and citing Yeshua as proof of that, that annoys them theologically. So being is how they are the temple administrative authorities, so they get the temple guards to go grab these guys and throw them in the jug until they can deal with them the next day. The thing that really annoys them is his preaching of resurrection because that does not fit their theology. We're all the way down to verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So you have the family of the high priest, and it's my understanding that the actual office of the high priest rotated periodically. I think Caiaphas was the guy that presided over the trial of the crucifixion. So on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired them being Peter and John. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So these guys are teaching. They're not authorized teachers. They're not scholars or anything. They're common men. And so they drag him in there and said, what authority do you have for all this? Peter actually turns them around on him a bit because he says, oh, are you talking about the good deed we did to the cripple? Is that what you're talking about? By whose authority did we do that? And we did that by the authority of Yeshua, whom you crucified. And you can see for yourself that this guy is standing before you perfectly whole. I don't know that that was actually their question, but, you know, it could be. Verse 11. This Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's camp out there for a minute. First off, the chief cornerstone is a quote from Psalm 118. I will go ahead and read it to you. And I will pick it up at verse 19, Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And of course, what Peter is saying is that's a messianic song. The cornerstone which you guys rejected is in fact God's cornerstone. Cornerstone upon which he will build his church and his kingdom. Now, I'm back in Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I have heard in the Sunday church... Lots of people say that unless you say the name of Jesus, you can't be saved. That's not what this says. It says that there is no name given under heaven among men. In other words, there is no name of a man in which there is salvation except Yeshua. That's what the sentence says. There is, however, another name in which you may be saved. It is the name Jehovah. Because in Joel chapter 2, for example, it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name Jehovah shall be saved. And the way I would describe this, my interpretation, if you don't like it, you don't have to accept it, is you have one being in three persons. You have God, and he makes himself known to us in the person of the Father. He makes himself known to us in the person of the Son, and he makes himself known to us in the person of the Spirit. Having a worship relationship with that being is what it takes. And if you come in through the door marked Jehovah, you're dealing with the same being as if you come in through the door marked Yeshua. It is the same being that you are worshiping. 
That's one of the reasons that I personally do not worry about devout Jews. They have a covenant. God will take care of them. And they have a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're just coming in through a different door than we are. But they are worshiping the same being. You don't have to buy that. And I'm sure our Baptist friends would not. From my perspective, not that my perspective sways God in any way, shape, or form. My perspective is that a Jew that has a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I don't need to worry about. And interestingly enough, this isn't the authority, but interestingly enough, neither does the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has changed their doctrine. The change in the doctrine is quit trying to convert the Jews. They have a covenant, they're fine. Just leave them alone. And I don't think anybody in here regards the Catholic Church as authoritative, but this is not just Johnnyology. There are theological heavy hitters out there that think the same thing. According to Jewish theology, the Messiah comes twice. The first time he comes as the son of Joseph, and he dies. The second time he comes, he comes as the son of David, and he rules and reigns. Their problem is Christian persecution. That's their problem. Christian persecution for 2,000 years. What we're seeing play out, I said this a couple of weeks ago during Midrash, Joseph leads into exile. Judah leads into the return. So if you go back to the Torah, where we're studying right now on Shabbat, Joseph is the first one that goes down to Egypt. The rest of the nation follows. Judah is going to be the one that leads coming back to return. In other words, that's the pattern. Joseph went into exile when the northern kingdom was destroyed in 7-some-odd B.C. So they led into exile. They were the first tribe to go into exile, was, was Joseph. They are still in exile. Judah has now come back. Judah leads in the return. So Joseph is still out there. The Jews are expecting Joseph to come back. Scripture says Joseph will come back. And when that happens, what's going to happen is Yeshua, in his first incarnation, was the suffering servant, the son of Joseph. And who was his legal father? Joseph. Okay, it was his legal father. So the son of Joseph is going to confront his brothers. And who is going to repent at that time? Judah. Isn't that who repented in Egypt? Judah did. So that whole thing is going to be played out. And at that point, as I say, we're going to have the come to Jesus meeting. And yes, the tribes were reunified, they were reunited. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, because although he is the son of Joseph, he is also the son of Judah. He will reign. So now I'm all the way down to verse 13 in Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Yeshua. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
So as they're questioning these guys, I don't think they're really questioning so much about the healing that they did as they are about this preaching that they're doing. And Peter turns it on them and makes it about the healing in quotes Deuteronomy, and then they're looking at this guy that's healed, and all the air goes out of their sails because they can't do anything. So verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Yeshua. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, we're listening to God and not listening to you. And whether that's right or wrong, you figure it out. So whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So this guy is not a young kid, and you know you could say, gee, maybe he just healed. I mean, this guy's been crippled for 40 years. So getting him healed is clearly beyond what a human physician could do. 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. But when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's from Psalm 2. We'll go through Psalm 2 when I get down to the paragraph here. 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice here what just happened. They pray, and the Holy Spirit fills them again. Notice that it had filled them two or three days ago at Pentecost. Now, what that tells me is that the presence of the Holy Spirit on a person comes and goes. Because Peter was cruising along on the strength of Pentecost, and then they get together and they pray, and all of a sudden everything shakes, and the Holy Spirit lands on them again. I personally believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit on you is something that comes and goes. It's not something that's always on you. Back at the end of Luke, Yeshua 
breathes on them before his ascension and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, my personal uneducated opinion is if the Messiah himself breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you've got the Holy Spirit. Then he says, wait here until you receive power. That happens at Pentecost. So this is just my feeble attempt to try and explain it. They had the Holy Spirit when Yeshua breathed on them. They were not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit landed on them in Pentecost. I believe they continued to have the Holy Spirit, but the power would have faded. The power has now been renewed in this paragraph. That's my guess. Now, back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, in 12 verses, is a conversation within the Godhead. There are three voices in this psalm. There's the voice of the Father, there's the voice of the Son, and then there's the narrator, which I am taking to be the voice of the Spirit. So let's go through it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So this is the spirit setting the stage, if you will. And notice that the rulers are taking counsel against Jehovah, the Lord, and against his anointed, against the Messiah. That's all Messiah means is anointed. So the nations are raging, and the peoples are plotting in vain, and the kings are setting themselves in opposition to God and his Messiah. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... So now the voice is going to switch. What you have is God the Father now speaking, quote, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Close quotes. So that's God speaking, and that's what he says. Verse 7 starts the son. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Now, the son quoting the father. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Close quote. So that's the end of the son's quotation of the father, and it is also the end of the son's speech, and we now, in verse 10, pick up the spirit again, the narrator. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Everybody see how all that parses out? All right, so now let's go back to Acts. So I'm in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. And a great grace was upon them all. 
There was not any needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Camp here for just a minute now. You all know the story of the Mayflower. The Mayflower, with the pilgrims on board, sailed to the United States. They made the Mayflower Compact. That compact was modeled on this paragraph of Acts. The original Mayflower Compact was modeled on this, and they had everything in common. They divvied up the land, but the land belonged to everybody, and they took the produce of the land, and they brought it into a storehouse, and then they handed it out to everybody as they had need. They nearly starved to death. And the reason for that was, very quickly, the lazy ones among them determined that they were going to get the same no matter whether they worked or not, and the industrious ones among them determined that working that hard didn't get them anything extra. So what wound up happening is they had very little and they almost starved to death. They then changed the compact to give each family its own plot of land and each plot of land could be worked by that family and the produce belonged to them and they could sell it or use it themselves or anything else and after that the colony flourished. Now this is genealogy and I don't know if this is true, but I think it is. I think what's going on is the apostles are expecting the Lord to come back at any time. And you've all seen what happens with these weird cults that go and say, oh, the Lord's coming back on this day. And they go sell everything that they have and get rid of everything to be ready for the Lord's return. I think that's what's going on here. They're expecting the Lord to come back at any moment and they are divesting themselves and, and using the stuff that they have in the Lord's work, which is a good thing, but they're not planning for the future. They're expecting Yeshua to be back at any moment, so they're not worried about planting, they're not worried about harvesting the land, they're just liquidating stuff to spread the gospel with the expectation that it isn't going to be long. I think that's what's going on here. And a, you periodically have sects of Christianity that set themselves up according to this paragraph. And generally speaking, they either devolve into tyranny or starve to death. Because it just doesn't work for fallen human beings in the absence of the physical presence of God. And so, as I say, when the Mayflower guys tried it, found out really quick it didn't work, and before they all starved to death, they changed. So anyway, that's, that's my two cents worth on what I think is going on there, but it doesn't say that in Scripture, so if you've got some other take on it, God bless you, uh, good is what I got. And with that, you probably ought to stop. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.